thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it is the 24th of October. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. In the one hour that uh, this programme is going to take, about 300 people around the world are going to get infected with HIV and roughly the same number of people are going to die of an HIV or AIDS-related illness. So we're actually putting HIV under the microscope this week to find out how this virus actually hijacks your immune system and why, despite nearly 30 years of effort, there is still no vaccine. And joining me today to take a look at this story is Dr Katani. Hello, Kat. Hi, thanks, Chris. Also on the way, the discovery of taste buds in our lungs and how they control our airways, gene therapy for depression, and how £30,000 worth of Lego is helping to revolutionise how engineering is taught, but not at primary school, at university. This is completely different Lego to the sort of Lego I grew up with as a kid. So we've got Lego with motors and sensors and actuators and microprocessors. They can build gearboxes and springs and levers and all sorts of complicated mechanisms. And it's a fantastic medium for learning a lot about the principles behind engineering. So it's not just for kids. I absolutely adore Lego. Anyway, that's all to come on this week's Naked Scientists. And if you've got any science questions, we would love to hear from you. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can scribble on the wall of our Facebook page of the same name, Naked Scientists. Or you can email us as well. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. First, let's take a look at what's hot this week from the world of science. Kat, what have you got for us? Well, it's well known that human tongues can taste five sensations, the sweet, salt, bitter, sour and the mysterious umami. And this is due to different molecular receptors in our taste buds. But now, research from scientists in the US has shown that bitter taste receptors actually play a role in our lungs as well as our tongues. And their finding could lead to new ways to treat asthma and other lung diseases that affect around 300 million people around the world, including me. I am an asthmatic. <laughs> you bitter believe it. So come on, what's the story here? Well, this work builds on a discovery that we covered on the show back in 2009, where researchers first discovered that the same receptors that detect bitter tastes on our tongues could also be found in our lungs, and they're lurking on special hairy cells that line our airways. And it's thought they're there to detect nasty stuff in the air we breathe and stimulate the lungs to get rid of them by sort of producing phlegm and, and wafting this stuff out of our lungs. But now, Stephen Liggett and his team at the University of Maryland have published a paper in the journal Nature Medicine showing that the same bitter receptors can actually be found in airway muscle cells too. And um, what do we think they're doing on those cells? 
Well, the researchers thought that stimulating these bitter receptors with bitter chemicals might cause muscle cells to contract and that would narrow the airways and cause you to cough, so you'd cough out any nasty stuff you'd inhaled. But in fact, they found the opposite. Bitter chemicals actually cause a massive spike in calcium within these muscle cells and that makes them relax. It makes your airways become more open. And this isn't just a small effect. It was actually three times larger than the effect that they saw with chemicals called beta-adrenergic receptor agonists. And these are molecules that are commonly used in asthma inhalers to relieve airway constriction. Indeed, your average salbutamol puffer is a beta-2 agonist, isn't it? That's what that does. Exactly, the old blue inhaler. So what are the implications here then? Well, the scientists think that stimulating these bitter receptors could be a really great way to treat asthma or other diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. Now, there's thousands of naturally produced and man-made bitter chemicals out there in the world, so at least one, and probably more, is going to be suitable as a drug, so it'll be non-toxic and it'll be active and be able to be delivered in the right way. And the lab research also suggests that combining bitter receptor activators with current asthma treatments, such as these salbutamol all these beta-adrenergic receptor agonists, they might pack even more of a punch because these drugs work in completely different ways on the cells in the lungs. But it might mean that your asthma inhaler tastes a little bit nasty. I was going to say, it might not be something you want to inhale. Thank you very much, Kat. We're talking of nasty things, depression now. And uh, there's a new piece of research published this week that shows that, in fact, it may be possible to treat some resistant or refractory cases of depression with gene therapy. This is a paper in Science Translational Medicine this week by Brian Alexander and his colleagues. He's based at Cornell in the States. And what he and his colleagues have been looking at is a gene called P11. And P11 is expressed in the nervous system and it has an important role because it makes nerve cells put onto their surfaces receptors which are like chemical docking stations for neurotransmitter chemicals. These are the substances that nerve cells squirt out so that one nerve cell can hear what the other is saying. So if you don't have enough of this P11 gene, cells can't communicate very effectively and messages don't get through. At least if you look in the brains of people who have had depression at post-mortem, you can find that certain bits of the nervous system in humans seem to have low levels of this gene. So what this group did is to look at a mouse in which this gene had been knocked out from the mouse, in other words, genetically deleted, and these mice show the rodent equivalent of depressive behaviour. So they don't engage in voluntary activity terribly well, they show very stereotypical behaviours, and they don't seek out rewarding behaviours. They don't go and do things which most animals would do, which is clearly rewarding to that animal, like going and having a sugary drink or something. What they then did was to make a modified virus from which the bad genes had been removed and replaced with a copy of this P11 gene, and they used that modified virus to introduce to certain bits of the mouse brain new copies of this gene, P11. And they found that when the uh, modified virus was injected into a region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is the brain's pleasure centre, it's where we are thought to experience sensations that we find nice, they found that that gene expressed in that part of the brain actually put the mice right. In other words, these mice showing these classic depression symptoms went back to behaving just the same as normal mice. And why this is important is that it shows that with the restitution of this gene in just one bit of the nervous system, which we know is also affected in humans who get depression, you can make the depressive symptoms, in mice at least, go away. So this may offer a way of treating or managing very hard-to-treat cases of depression in in humans in future. But we hear we hear a lot about gene therapy, but how difficult is it to actually deliver gene therapy into a human brain? It sounds like that might be quite challenging. 
Well, actually, it's been done for an, a number of years, and there's a clinical trial which is going on at the moment. Um, the idea behind using viruses is not a new one. Viruses are well adapted and very efficient at delivering genetic messages into cells, and now we understand quite a bit about how viruses work. It's possible to use them like a Trojan horse. You can put inside the virus the gene you want to carry into your target cell and then use the virus to infect the cell you want the gene to go into, and in it goes. There's, in fact, a clinical trial going on at the moment for Parkinson's disease to deliver genes which are thought to help nerve cells that are vulnerable to the effects of Parkinson's disease to survive better and so what researchers are now saying and in fact in, the, in this very paper they're saying we could use that same system that's being used and trialled for Parkinson's disease and put these P11 genes in there and use them to treat cases of depression. Okay. All good stuff. Anyway, also this week, uh, a team of international astronomers have confirmed the sighting of the most distant object ever seen. Ben Valsler spoke to Bristol University's Professor Malcolm Bremer to find out more. We were trying to identify extremely distant galaxies, in this case a single galaxy, so that we can understand the very early stages of galaxy evolution. We're seeing this galaxy very early on in the history of the universe we think, therefore, that it will tell us a lot about the early stages of how galaxies form and then evolve from the very small building blocks, such as this galaxy, into the larger galaxies like the Milky Way that we see today. And also, we are seeing this object at a particular time in the universe where there is a transition in the state of the gas that fills the universe. And we hope to be able to use this galaxy as a probe of that. So if we come back to using the light from this galaxy as a probe to measure cosmology a bit later on, first of all, tell me a bit more about this galaxy. It's at what we think of as a very large redshift. Now, what does that actually mean? The redshift is a measure of how much the universe has expanded between the time that the photons were emitted by the galaxy, the radiation that was emitted by the galaxy, and by the time we receive it. So a redshift of about an eight and a half actually relates to the universe stretching by about nine and a half times in linear dimension. And what does that mean about how old the light actually is that's getting to us? That actually means that the light was emitted about 600 million years after the Big Bang, and we are receiving it now 13.1 billion years later, as well as the time it takes for the light to reach us. Also, the light that we're interested in, which was originally emitted in the ultraviolet, we receive in the infrared because the expansion of the universe stretches all of the wavelengths of radiation coming from the galaxy by that much by the time we actually receive the radiation. So this new galaxy, is there anything particularly special about it that enables us to be able to see it, even though it's that far away? Well, we hope not, because what we're trying to characterise is the typical galaxy at these distances. The area of sky that was searched in order to find this object was searched using the Hubble Space Telescope with a brand-new infrared camera by other astronomers, and they came up with a catalogue of objects that they believed to be at these great distances. Any one of them could be at the distance of this object or even slightly larger. So what we're actually hoping for is that this is a typical very, very distant object. It just happens to be because it takes an awful lot of effort that this is the first one that we've confirmed to be this far away. So you mentioned earlier that we can use it to probe cosmology, really. As this light was emitted when the universe was very young, what can we determine about the state of the universe just from this light? Well, we expect that 
this object is observed as the hydrogen that fills the universe changed in state. Previous to this time, the hydrogen was cool, neutral material like the gas within the atmosphere of, of, of Earth. But then, at some point, something ionised that gas, and the effect of that is that the neutral hydrogen is opaque to much of the radiation that's emitted by these galaxies. But then, as it gets ionised, charged effectively, and heated, it becomes transparent, and you can see the light escaping from these galaxies. It's an important step in the evolution of the universe. Knowing when it started, when this process ended, and what was causing the heating, the ionisation of the gas, is actually an important set of questions for astronomers. If we understand that, we understand an awful lot more about the early universe than we currently do. So looking at the spectrum of light from this enormously distant galaxy, not only can we tell how far away it is, how much space has expanded, but by looking at the bits where this gas has absorbed some of that light in order to become ionised, we can also start to get an idea of the conditions that were around this galaxy. That's right, in that one thing that, that's peculiar about this galaxy is, although we've detected it and we've detected the signature of hydrogen within it, it doesn't seem to be luminous enough for itself to have converted the hydrogen that's around it on the larger scale by itself from neutral to ionised gas. We suspect, therefore, that what we're seeing is the signature of other galaxies that were either very bright before the time that we're actually seeing this galaxy or just lots of smaller galaxies which are too faint to detect which have actually done the excavation of the neutral hydrogen for that object. It on itself, I don't think, would be able to actually carry out that process. So that's evidence of other galaxies that are still too faint for us to see with current technology, but evidence that they must have been around in order to have that effect. What's the next step for us? How do we start to try and look for these galaxies? These observations clearly push right at the limit of what we're able to do with current technology with both space-based and ground-based telescopes. But there will be technological improvements that will happen quite soon within astronomy. For example, we'll get new instruments on the ground-based telescopes that we're using at the moment. But also, over the next few years, there will be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope will fly. This is the James Webb Space Telescope. And then on the longer term, we hope to build extremely large telescopes from the ground with mirrors of size 30 to 40 metres, whereas the current typical size of a large telescope is an 8-metre mirror. And that will be much, much more sensitive to these kinds of objects. And hopefully we will not just be able to do a detection of these objects, but we will get much better spectra of them and therefore be able to tell you much more about their physical state. That was Malcolm Bremer from Bristol University speaking to Ben Valsler about the most distant astronomical object ever recorded. It's not my missing fashion sense. It's an object whose light was emitted when the universe was very, very young, less than 600 million years old. And that paper was published in the journal Nature this week. Chris. Kat, thank you very much. Something you need, because you obviously have got a cold by the sound of it, is to make sure you eat your vegetables. And uh, you and our Paleolithic ancestors, it turns out, our Stone Age ancestors, had a penchant for not just meat, as people used to think, 
nothing but a meat and two veg. Anna Reverdin is a researcher from Italy. She's published a paper with colleagues in the journal PNAS this week. And this group of archaeologists went to three sites across Europe, including a site in Italy, the Czech Republic and Russia. And they recovered tools which go back about 30,000 years from these sites. And they included various grinding tools and even a mortar and pestle. And embedded on the surfaces of those stone tools that are 30,000 years old are starch grains from plants that these people were presumably grinding up and processing. And the interesting thing is that the plants they were choosing included species of typha and also spaganium. And these are very starch-rich rhizomic things, a bit like potatoes really, which have very thick roots that would have yielded enormous amounts of starch when ground up. So these people were clearly processing plant matter, grinding it up, and the interesting thing that the researchers point out in their paper is that to make this actually have any kind of nutritional value and taste edible, these people would have had to have cooked this stuff as well. So this winds back the clock a long way before our previous thoughts and understanding of when people actually started to favour not just meat, uh, they're two veg as well. Anyway, all those stories are on our website if you'd like to read up a bit more about them. The references are there too. You can find them at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And coming up, we'll be finding out how understanding the structure of HIV can help us to develop vaccines and also to find out what young engineers make of Lego. Kat? Now it's time to turn our gaze on the Earth rather than viruses. The Earth is under constant bombardment by a one million mile per hour maelstrom of charged particles that continuously stream out of the sun. Now, we're protected from this solar wind by the Earth's magnetic field, luckily, but a sudden surge in solar activity can nonetheless overcome this protective shield, leading to damage to satellites and power lines. A dramatic example of this occurred in the mid-1800s, and Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to meet geomagnetist Alan Thompson in the archives of the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh to uncover magnetic records from the event. It's all wrapped in, in tissue paper. It almost looks like ancient parchment, doesn't it, with this wiggly line on. This was from photographic paper, and then the marks along it and this one here what's this september no august august 31st yeah, so it 1859 runs, it runs from august 31st into the 1st of september and we've got two traces here one of them is the variation of the compass needle on that day now most of the time it doesn't change too much it's a few tenths of a degree change on a normal day but in this event Towards the end of the record, there's a Wow, it's right off the scale. It's huge. And that marks the arrival of X-ray radiation from the sun. Something's happened on the sun on that day, and we're seeing the first record of that. And the way that works is the X-rays ionise the gas in the atmosphere, and those electrical currents cause magnetic field. And that's what our instruments measure. So we've picked that up, and we know this event followed what was known as a solar flare. The first one of us witnessed by eye by the astronomer Richard Carrington. So his claim to fame is that it's now named after him. It's the Carrington event of 1859, and it's the biggest magnetic storm that we think we have in our records. So in 1859, would anyone have noticed that? If they weren't measuring it, would anyone on Earth have noticed this solar activity? Yeah, well, this was the Victorian era, and we had a telegraph system. Some people have dubbed it the Victorian Internet. The telegraph operators normally would use batteries to power this system. But when the Aurora Borealis was in full swing, they didn't need to, they just disconnected. And the natural electromagnetic variations 
from this big solar activity, this magnetic storm, could power the internet, uh, sorry, the Victorian internet directly. So they could power the telegraph directly yeah. from the yeah. sun? Yeah, and there's, in, there's reports of fires and uh, people getting electric shocks as well. So it was not a trivial uh, thing happening at the time. OK, Alan, we've come to the opposite end of the building. We're up on the roof now. And this is how you do it these days. So nowadays we have a series of automatic instruments that run at remote locations called magnetic observatories, and we have three of them in the UK. And the instrument we've got in front of us is one method that we use to calibrate those automatic instruments. Now, Chris Turbot, you've set this instrument up for us. What can it measure? It looks almost like a, a surveyor's tool. This is exactly what it is. You'll probably see surveyors using these at the side of the road. It's a yellow theodolite sitting on a wooden tripod. It's a little bit different in that all of the magnetic content's been taken out, so there's no iron and steel left in there. It's all been replaced with copper and brass, etc. And it has been adapted because we put on the top of it, this is a fluxgate magnetometer, and it's a little instrument that's sensitive to the direction of the magnetic field along which it's pointing. And the idea of it is that we can rotate it around and search for the direction of the magnetic field. That's telling me that we are actually off slightly. If I just rotate it, the theodolite round with the magnetometer on the top of it, it will oh. go through. I just went through it there. I'll just go back a little bit until... We, there we go. That's it, zero. So that's us lined up. Now, what's the point of doing this other than to build up a past record? Can you use it to predict what's going to happen? Well, one of the things we do is we exchange data with other institutes around the world, and that allows us to build up models and maps of how the field is changing. And in part of that process, yes, to some extent, we can predict the long-term change in the magnetic field, but realistically only up to about a year ahead, which is why we have, it's a continuous process of measuring and modelling to build better maps. And with a bit of scientific insight, yes, we'd like to push that a bit further ahead than just a year ahead. And do you think... In our lifetimes, we'll see anything like that 1859 event. There's every chance of it. It's very hard to quantify how frequently such an event should come round. But the sun is very variable, and it's entirely possible that we can get an event like that, well, every, maybe every 100 years, but that, it's hard to tell, and that's one of the reasons why we have to keep looking into the records to try and get a better understanding of just how frequent that might happen. That was Alan Thompson from the British Geological Survey talking to Richard Hollingham. And if you enjoyed that, there are lots of more of Richard's podcasts as well as links to other Planet Earth resources at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Thank you very much, Kat. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists. You can, of course, also scribble on our Facebook page. That's Naked Scientists. Just look it up on Facebook or send us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. But first, it's time for this week's Naked Engineering. And for the first time this year, the University of Cambridge's engineering department have been experimenting with a novel way to initiate new engineering students into the world of engineering. And they're doing it with Lego. Mira and Dave went along to one of their workshops to investigate. This week on Naked Engineering, Dave and I have returned to the engineering department here at the University of Cambridge... But it's all a bit different this time, as we're surrounded by hundreds of first-year students here. And they all appear to be playing with, well, Lego. I'm sure there's got to be some kind of engineering aspect to this. Dave, what can Lego show us about engineering? I was essentially brought up on Lego. And the wonderful thing about Lego is it's very, very quick to take an idea in your head and convert it into a 3D object. The 3D object might not be quite the same as traditional engineering materials it's a bit wobbly it's made out of plastic 
But even with the old-fashioned Lego, which I grew up with, you could build all sorts of wonderful things, and it appears to have moved on somewhat in the intervening years. Now, the course organiser that's put this all together is Andrew G from the University of Cambridge. Hello, Andrew. Hello. What type of Lego and how much of it are the students actually given? This is completely different Lego to the sort of Lego I grew up with as a kid. So when I think of Lego from 35 years ago, I think of little Duplo bricks that you stick together. But uh, when I saw this, I couldn't believe how much has come on. So we've got Lego with motors and sensors and actuators and microprocessors and technical parts. They can build gearboxes and springs and levers and all sorts of complicated mechanisms. And it's a fantastic medium for constructing engineering systems and actually learning a lot about the principles behind engineering. And it's very open-ended. We've given the students an opportunity to build whatever sort of machines they want. Some of them have built machines which, they're, which are taking them into areas of engineering that we don't even cover till the second year, you know, so all illustrated on a Lego system. Now, you have a lot of students here, though, working at the moment. In this session alone, it's half of the year, so it's 165 students. Has anything stood out in particular amongst all of the groups here? I think what's really stood out about amongst all the groups is there they were so keen to build something different and come up with machines I wouldn't have dreamt of building. You know, they've come up with machines that will fire a projectile at a target that you position as an arbitrary position using the projectile theory that they've learned at school, but they're putting it into practice with the Lego. And they'll also see the limitations of what they've learned at school in that the sums won't quite work because they don't take into account air resistance, and then they'll have to try and take that into account to learn a bit more. So I've, what, what's really impressed me most has been their willingness to actually do something original rather than follow instructions. Okay, so um, I'm quite excited to see what's going on. So Dave and I are just going to go for a wander and see what the groups have been up to. Yeah, it looks absolutely fascinating. To be honest, I'm very, very jealous. Hi, I'm Josie Hughes. Hi, I'm Catherine Sams. So Josie and Catherine, what have you made here? It looks very interesting. Uh, it's meant to be like a Lego photocopier. Well, it's not really like a conventional photocopier. We have a little car that's got a sensor underneath that detects. It can detect the colour of the paper. When the light sensor sees that it's white, it just moves along. But when it sees it's black, it stops and puts the pen that's attached to the car down. And then when the pen's down, then if the car moves forward again, so the pen's kind of dragging along and drawing a line, and then as soon as it sees white, it stops and moves the pen up. It'll do that all the way along. And then it goes back and it'll move the paper a little bit and then start all over again. So effectively, it kind of copies it along in lines. And how's it working so far? Um, it's okay, there are a couple of hitches with the, with the pen, pressing a bit hard on the paper and making holes in the paper, um, but just things that we're trying to kind of even out so it goes really smoothly. Hi there, I'm John Hopkins. Uh, we've got here a robot device sort of thing which manoeuvres around the keypad of a phone and will send a text for you. So you've basically got three axes of movement there? Yeah, we've got forwards, backwards for moving down the numbers and then we've, we've got an actual rotate between, say, a two, a three or a one. I guess another something which will push down? Yeah, so we've got a motor that turns a small pivoting arm to press the button and then the, the keypad noise, once the button's been pressed, in fact releases the motor. So you've got an audio sensor there which is detecting the sound? Yeah. So yeah. how's it going? Pretty good, yeah. I mean, there's a few difficulties, as always. Background noise, in fact, it may be, but that's giving us a few problems because you get a nice spike with the the keypad tone. But if someone hits a table or something, or you're picking that up. So we get some, it just seems to throw it off a little bit. So how quickly will it text? Any competition with a 13-year-old yet? No, not a popular one. But I think if you were working on the computer, you had to send a text. You could write the text out on the computer, press send, leave it running alongside you, not worrying about how fast it's going to send. And then five minutes later, you may well have sent your text. <laughs>
Hello, I'm Hugh Carson, and I've made, well, me and my team have made a two-speed automatic transmission car. Tell me a bit more about this car. So it's about 30 centimetres in length anyway, but what's it comprised of? What's all going on inside it? Uh, we've got one motor controlling the gearbox, and that just drives straight into the drive shaft of the gearbox, and then we have an output onto the rear wheels. We have one motor controlling the gear transmission, which slides the gears across to change gear whilst it's running. And then we have another motor attached to a steering column at the front, which is responsible for choosing where it goes. And then in front of that, we have an ultrasonic sensor for detecting whether the ground in front of it's going up or down, and thus whether we're coming across a hill or a trough. A big part of it is all well, really problem-solving. So what kind of problems have you encountered whilst making this and how, what have you kind of thought about to overcome them? One of the big ones which we had today was we discovered the engines which drive this can't do enough force at low speeds. So we had to add an extra set of gears to step down the motor again so that we could run at our high revs and still have the force output. And um, how's it functioning? Are we able to see it in action? Yes. OK, so it's starting up. So you've got it uh, moving along a desk now, and you've got it going up a slight ramp, so that's how it's detecting the change in elevation. Yes. It's a range detector on the front, and it basically, if it suddenly changes quite quickly... Oh, sorry, the gearbox just broke. <laughs> More problem-solving, though, so that's yes, good. a lot of it. <laughs> and I guess, um, lastly, though, have you enjoyed it? Yes, a great deal. It's playing with Lego again. Who doesn't enjoy that? <laughs> Now, Andrew, Dave and I have had a good wander around. We've seen photocopiers, pendulums, steam engines, as well as cars, as we'd hope to see too. What are you hoping they walk away with, I guess? So what kinds of skills will they hopefully now use over the rest of their time here? Lots of things, really. I mean, from working in teams, they're all working in teams of three. The three was intentional. Three creates a bit of interpersonal uh, conflict, which is <laughs> very real world, and so it's a good lesson for them to learn. Simple things like basic engineering vocabulary. They all now know what a pin-jointed truss is and what a bearing is and what a gear is. So even if it's just vocabulary they take away, importantly, they've learned to think in three dimensions. They've learned to program in MATLAB, which is a very useful engineering programming language that they'll be seeing a lot of in the next three years. So I take it then you'll definitely bring this back for next year's first year? Absolutely, definitely. No question about it. That's an engineering, absolutely, definitely. You've got to love that. Andrew G there with some of his first-year students from the Department of Engineering at uh, the University of Cambridge, where they introduced Lego into the syllabus for the first time this year. And the workshops that the students actually went on with after that did result in a number of presentations, and there were five winning designs, which included a CD reader and a writer, a coin sorter, and also a noughts and crosses player. So who knew you could accomplish quite so much with humble Lego? Naked Engineering is supported by an ingenious grant which is given to us by the Royal Academy of Engineering. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. And you're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists or go onto Facebook, look up Naked Scientists there. Or send us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We are talking about HIV on the show, and uh, now we're going to 
have a real in-depth look at what this is. Because HIV, it's the agent that causes AIDS, is responsible for probably the worst pandemic that humankind has ever encountered. According to UN AIDS, there were up to 36 million people living with the virus in 2008. And in that same year, there were about 7,500 new HIV infections occurring every single day. And about 7,000 people dying of HIV-related illnesses every day. Now, if we're to halt the spread of this disease, we need to understand the detailed workings of this virus in order to develop new drugs and vaccines. And one scientist who's working on how the virus hijacks our cells is Mark Marsh from University College London, who joins us. Hello, Mark. Hello, Kat. Now, what I'd really like to find out from you is, what is HIV? How do people catch it? How does it get into our cells? How does it multiply? Tell us about HIV. What's it like? Well, HIV is a virus of the retrovirus family. It's a, a group of the, a member of the group of so-called lentiviruses. This is a subfamily of retroviruses. And all retroviruses have the common feature that their genome is a, a piece of RNA. Normally, uh, lentiviral particles will package two copies of that genomic RNA. And the feature of these viruses is that once they've penetrated a host cell, they carry an enzyme in the virus particle that can copy the RNA into DNA. And that DNA can then be targeted to the cell nucleus and it can be integrated into the genome of the host cell. So it becomes an integral part of the genetic composition of the host cell. Now, these particles are small. You can imagine them to be about the size of a football compared to Wembley Stadium or an orange on the surface of a circus tent. And the RNA genome has to be wrapped up within a protective layer for transmission from cell to cell. And that layer, in the case of retroviruses and lentiviruses, is actually a piece of membrane derived from the host cells. So it's exactly the same material that lines the surface of, of cells. And what has to happen during the transmission phase is that viruses have to be put together within an infected cell. So they have to assemble and form this membrane around their genetic material. They then are transferred to a new target cell. They have to recognize that target cell by docking to receptors. And then they undergo a so-called fusion reaction where the membrane of the virus fuses with the target cell membrane. And that inserts that RNA then into the target cell where the whole process of that replication then proceeds. So let's get this straight. HIV is smuggling itself into our DNA, then stealing our proteins and membranes to coat itself and then put itself into more cells. Absolutely. <laughs> these, these viruses are incredibly simple. They have just uh, nine open reading frames, so nine genes that encode 15 proteins. And that means then that they have to rely very heavily on host cell machineries to mediate their replication. And recent uh, screens, which are now technically uh, possible, have, have identified in the order of about 300 cellular proteins that are required to complete the viral replication cycle. So yes, they're using all sorts of machinery within the cell to accomplish their replication. Now, to my mind, that makes HIV sound quite weak, that it might have a lot of sort of Achilles heels and that we could just 
you know, remove some of these proteins that it needs and then it wouldn't be able to replicate in our cells and then we'd be able to treat it. What makes it so difficult to treat? Why can't we just, you know, knock out a few proteins and then it can't do its thing anymore? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, over the years since the discovery of HIV, there's been very effective development of drugs that target key proteins encoded by the virus. So, for example, the reverse transcriptase that copies RNA to DNA, the integrase that allows the virus to integrate its genome into the host cell DNA. Uh, those enzymes have been uh, worked on extensively and drugs have been developed that will inhibit viral replication in infected cells. The problem is it's possible for the virus to mutate its way around those drugs so that they no longer become effective. But what's happened over, over the last few years is, is the realization that perhaps by understanding more about the cellular machinery that's involved in, in viral replication, those cellular proteins may be possible targets for drug development as well. And that notion has sort of developed uh, from a state previously where it was considered that host cell targets were really not on because there was likely to be damage to the host organism. But I think now there's a realization that, that those can be realistic targets. And so by trying to understand in more detail how these host cell components are used, it may then be possible to develop drugs or a whole new repertoire of drugs that could be used for not only HIV, but a variety of other viruses. Now, as you mentioned earlier, um, HIV is slightly unusual in that it it converts its genome from RNA, which is what we normally associate with being a message, into DNA and puts that into human cells. And with many viruses that infect us, like the cold that I've currently got, my immune system is getting rid of the viruses and then that infection is gone. How challenging is it then when we think about HIV and about treating HIV that it does leave its genome within our own genome? Well, it's not just a matter of the, the virus having the ability to integrate into uh, a host cell DNA, but the HIV and related viruses, the, the, the simian viruses and so forth, are targeting the very cells which would normally combat a viral infection. So these viruses are targeting so-called T lymphocytes, white blood cells, which are absolutely essential for mounting effective immune responses. And they also target cells of the monocyte macrophage dendritic cell lineage. And those cells are again key for initiating and driving immune responses in infected individuals. So whereas a, a cold virus will infect the epithelium, the cells that line the nose and the, the pharynx um, and, and the immune system can be then brought to bear on those infected cells. In the case of HIV, the virus is targeting the very cells that would normally fight the infection. Cunning stuff. So tell us a little bit about your work. What aspect of HIV are you studying and uh, what do you hope to, to lead to in the future? You know, new treatments, that kind of thing. Well, we've for a long time been interested in the mechanisms through which viruses in general get into cells, the way they subvert cellular machineries to get into a target cell, and also the processes by which they then undergo assembly within those infected cells to, to mediate their exit. And 
nowadays HIV is actually one of the best model viruses for studying those types of uh, processes because so much research has gone into HIV over the last 15, 20 years that there's huge numbers of uh, uh, reagents available, lots of information available about receptors and components, etc., that are essential. And so HIV becomes a, a very useful model for these sorts of processes. But what we would really like to understand is the integrated way in which the virus recruits machinery of the target cell in order to mediate its replication. And if we can understand that in sufficient detail, then we can perhaps set about developing the sorts of uh, uh, novel drugs that um, I mentioned earlier to, to provide new repertoires of reagents to fight these viruses. So we're interested in the processes of virus assembly, how the virus gets released from cells, and then how it it finds new target cells, gets taken up by those target cells and reinitiates the whole cycle of replication. And it just sounds incredible. It sounds like a whole factory being hijacked, you know, a factory that makes something like nice classical music CDs being hijacked to make Justin Bieber CDs. What have your, what have your leads been so far? How, where, where are we heading with your kind of research in well, the future? One of the things that we've, we've, just, we've been working on together with colleagues in, in the States is that in the envelope proteins of these viruses, these are the proteins that are responsible for docking on to target cells. On the cellular side of the membrane and the cytoplasmic side, there's very conserved signals which tell that protein where to go in an infected cell. And it turns out that if you mutate those signals in animal models, you completely abrogate pathogenesis. The animals will still get infected, but they're able to mount immune responses that control the virus. So we're very excited. We know what the cellular machinery is that binds those signals. And now if we can start to understand more about the nature of that interaction, perhaps then we can target those sites of interaction for uh, novel drug development. But of course, this is just one specific signal and the virus will have many of those. So the more we can find out, the more more options we'll have. Absolutely fantastic stuff. And we're going to be hearing a bit later on about a potential new vaccine for HIV. But uh, that's Mark Marsh from University College London. He'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions, then you can uh, get them to us right now. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists. We've got our Facebook page running, of course. You go to Naked Scientists on Facebook or send us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now... When HIV was first discovered about 30 years ago, there was significant optimism that we'd soon have a vaccine with which we could tackle that problem. But three decades later, there still isn't one. And to explain why and how he's trying to solve the problem is from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Maryland, Peter Kwong. Hello, Peter. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So what's the problem here? Why haven't we got a vaccine yet? I think the reasons why we don't have the vaccine relate in part to some of the things that Mike was telling with Kathy, that is that the virus infects the human host and that generates an immune response which is just not that effective. There's all this cellular machinery that the virus uses to cloak itself in different ways and moreover, the virus is able to integrate in such a way into T-cells that hides itself from the immune system. So you have the virus hiding out and you also have it provoking a particular response that is not so effective. So for both of those two reasons, the fact that it hides and it also provokes an inactive immune response, that has really complicated 
search for a vaccine. What we really want is these broadly neutralizing antibodies. Antibodies are generally what fights viruses and leads to good vaccines. So what are you trying to do to combat this problem? Well, there's been a, a lot of research to try to figure out what antibodies could actually effectively fight the virus. And for a long time, people thought there just aren't any. The people's immune systems don't effectively fight the virus. Recently, however, there's been a rash of broadly neutralizing antibodies that have been found in infected individuals. So if you take a screen of several thousand people, the top 1% or so turn out to have very, very good effective antibodies that can fight off virus. And so there's been a change in thinking from the idea that the human immune system is unable to fight the virus, and now the change of thinking is that the human immune system can fight off the virus, or at least make broadly neutralizing antibodies. It just takes it a bit of time to figure out how to do it. There's roadblocks to developing those things. But fortunately for us, if we're immunizing people, we have potentially a lot of time uh, to teach the immune system before you actually get exposed to the virus. So in your view, the way in which we need to tackle HIV is to prevent people becoming infected in the first place. So we've got to make people make that kind of what you're calling a broadly neutralizing immune response from a vaccine so that that repertoire of immune responses is there waiting in the uninfected person. So if they're challenged with HIV, they can fight it off because if we go in and they've already got it, it's too late. Absolutely, Chris. I mean, the, the problem with a vaccine in general is that you can only fight off the virus with a vaccination prior to infection. And so it appears that most viruses can't be solved with drugs. If one has the flu, for example, there aren't that many drugs that one can take that maybe ameliorate the disease a little bit, but that's very difficult. What's much more effective is if you come in beforehand with a vaccine to teach the immune system to fight off the virus when you have that moment of infection. And the reason for that is that when you're initially infected, maybe only one variant, two variants, a very little number of variants will cross over. And so if you have a a vaccine that can kill, say, 99% of those, then um, one can protect 99% of the people that might be infected by one or so variant. And on the other hand, once you're infected, you might have billions of variants. And so if a person has a treatment that might kill 99% of them, a billion variants, if you still kill off 99%, you have 10 million left. And so one doesn't have much of an effect on an infected individual. You really want to get it at the time of infection. Sounding rather like um, a TV advert for certain kinds of surface cleaning agent. But what do, we, what do we think it's going to take then in order to produce a vaccine that will elicit these kinds of broadly neutralizing responses? What's got to go into that vaccine? What sort of response are we trying to drive against what target on the virus? There are two really exciting things that have come out lately in terms of how to develop a vaccine. The first is that there was just a trial, the RV144 trial that was conducted in Thailand, where they actually stimulated with GP120 envelope glycoproteins and found a response that's able to prevent infection and about or reduce the rate of infection by about 30%. This is using so, the outer coat of the virus. GP120 is, is part of the, the surface marker on the virus, isn't it? Absolutely. And so... Before this, people thought, oh, an HIV vaccine, that's just going to be impossible. That's something like going to Pluto or something. It's not something that we can actually do. And with this human trial, they actually showed that an HIV vaccine is possible. They actually made one that's about 30% effective. Now, 30% isn't that great, but if one just increases the 
efficacy by a factor of three, you'd be up to around 90%. So they've already shown that it's possible, and the question is how to improve it. Now, when we know that human immune systems can generate these broadly interesting antibodies, those antibodies basically become templates for vaccine design. You basically have a useful solution, something that the human immune system can make on its own that tells you what you want to get in a vaccine. And so there's potential sites of vulnerability, places on the virus that the human immune system can attack. Now, there's just a couple of them, and you know, like the CD4 binding site, places where the virus latches on to the cell, that's the site of CD4 attachment, or some types of antibodies that are quaternary specific, those things that only functionally work with respect to the trimer. What that means is that there's absolutely ways that the human immune system can neutralize virus, but they're relatively complex and we're trying to figure out exactly how to make more antibodies. But we already know that the human immune system can make these antibodies. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to trigger the human immune system to do what we already know it can do, which is to make these effective neutralizing antibodies. And Peter, just in 30 seconds, how close are we to making that happen? Because it sounds from what you're saying like you're thinking quite optimistically. Absolutely. There's an air of optimism, but then you're asking for the time frame on that. And I think that that becomes a little bit difficult to say because just the trials alone, once we come up with something that teaches, say, the immune system of an animal um, to make broadly neutralizing antibodies, it's going to be at least five years from that stage to actually getting to work and getting into humans and going to phase one, two, or three trials. So the actual vaccination development process does take decades potentially. But what we're really excited about is the first couple steps where we can show in the laboratory that this is actually going to work. And those experiments are going forward. And once we know it's in the laboratory working, then it's just a matter of time before it actually becomes a working product. Let's hope so. Peter, thank you. That's Peter Kwong. He's from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Maryland in the US. He's with us for the rest of the programme. So if you have any questions, send them in and we'll try and get through them as fast as we can. Uh, I'll open the batting if that's OK. Mark, um, what one person is asking is uh, Nelson Gikora says, how true is it that some genes that protected people from the Black Death are the same genes that are now protecting people from HIV today? Well, there was a hypothesis a little while ago that a mutation in one of the receptor proteins, a so-called Delta 32 for CCR5, might have had some uh, protective effect uh, against the plague. I'm not sure that that's ever really been uh, verified. But it's certainly true that the Delta 32 um, allele, if one has two copies of that gene, there's no functional receptor for the virus. So individuals with that uh, uh, genetic composition are in general resistant to infection. Thank you, Mark. Um, Then we've got uh, this question here, which uh, David Wally says, Peter, are humans evolving to become resistant to HIV? Uh, The answer is yes in some ways in that if enough people die off, they will evolve to be resistant. But hopefully we don't have to go through a lot of deaths to have that. Hopefully we'll be able to come up with a vaccine and um, just eliminate the virus that way. We've got an interesting one here which is coming by text, Peter. Maybe you could look at this as well. Can genetically modified viruses be used to treat HIV? There are certainly things that one can do, for example, with genetically modified viruses as vectors for vaccines. So we can actually use viruses as tools and ways to, in vaccination, to induce a particular immune response that helps prevent the disease.
There was one story I saw of a group in America who were making conditionally replicating forms of HIV where they had a modified virus into which they had inserted the envelope, the surface coat protein gene, but they, they put the mirror image of that gene in. So when they infected people with this virus, if their own cells then got infected with the normal HIV, it made and mobilised an anti-HIV virus, which then went off around the body and protected other cells. So that may be, I suppose, one other approach to this. Luciano Medrano, Mark, says, how did HIV develop and mutate over the course of the years? Rhinoviruses, the cold virus, are mutating constantly every year and we have different strains. So what about with HIV? Is it the same? Certainly HIV mutates at a, at a very high rate. And in fact, within any inf infected individual, there's a whole swarm of viruses rather than a, a single strain. And then the uh, uh, selective conditions within those individuals tend to select the strains which are most dominant. But HIV certainly uh, replicates at a high rate, uh, mutates at a high rate. I suppose that has implications for resistance to treatment as Absolutely, well, Absolutely, yes. So people then become resistant to the drugs they're on because of this selective process. Absolutely. Right, well, I reckon we've almost run out of time, so we'd better go to our question of the week, Kat. Yes, it's time to join Diana O'Carroll, who's been seeing red and green for our question of the week. This week, it's a bit of a contrasting issue. I have a friend who can't see anything written in red or green on a whiteboard. However, he swears he's not even colourblind in any other way. If one of your team could solve this mystery for me, I'd be most happy. Thank you. If this isn't colourblindness, then why? And what is colourblindness? I'm Petrox Sumner from Cardiff University. So to answer the question about the pens on the whiteboard, basically this doesn't sound to me like a simple case of red-green colourblindness, but it might be a case of red-green colourblindness combined with something else. Basically, in the eye, we have two types of receptor called rods and cones. The rods do nighttime vision when things are relatively dark, and the cones do daytime vision. It's often a misnomer that cones only do color vision, but they also do light and dark vision during the day when the rods are not active. If you are red-green colorblind, it means that you don't have one type of cone. But that doesn't mean that you can't distinguish any colors, and it also means that you should still be able to distinguish things that differ in lightness. So, for example, yellow and brown or grey and white would still be pretty clearly distinguished for you. And because white on a whiteboard is basically the lightest colour, anything that's coloured is normally darker than white, which means that even though you might not be able to tell the difference between the red and the green pens, you should be able to tell the difference between the white board and the red and the green pens because both the pens will be darker than the white board. So that's why it doesn't sound like a, just a simple case of red-green colour blindness. So distinguishing coloured marks from their background shouldn't be a problem. What else could be going on? Having said that, the green and the red pens will be less dark than, say, a black or a blue pen would be. You can show this, actually, by doing a little experiment, which I just did myself. I wrote red and green writing on my whiteboard. I shut the curtains, made it as dark as possible in the room, turned the lights out, waited until I was accustomed. And then it's clear to me that even though I've now lost my colour vision because I'm seeing with my rods and not my cones anymore, I can still see both the red and the green writing. But you should also see that the green is less distinct than the red, and the red is less distinct than black writing. And that's because both the coloured pens won't be as dark as the black pen. You can then imagine that if you combine this, not having colour vision, with, say, not being fully able to see the thin lines, 
So if you squint at these lines, for example, you probably see that they disappear. I can get the green one to disappear if I kind of squint at it. And that might be sort of simulating if I wasn't wearing my glasses or if I had some other reason that in my eye I wasn't so sensitive to contrast or to acuity. So that's why maybe a colour blindness associated with something else could mean that you wouldn't be able to see these pens on a whiteboard. The reason a colourblind person wouldn't be able to see a laser pointer on a whiteboard is because it isn't darker than the whiteboard. A laser pointer is adding light to the whiteboard, of course, and so it isn't darker than the whiteboard. It only differs in colour, and that's why a colourblind person would have difficulty seeing the red laser pointer on a whiteboard. Colour blindness occurs when certain types of cones in the eye aren't present, but the person in the question sounds as if he has some cones. Perhaps it's more of an issue with detecting differences in luminosity or the brightness of surfaces. And on the forum you can find some colour-sighted interpretations of colour blindness. I don't know how true this is, but my brother, who is colour blind, always used to say that because he'd learned to interpret colours from shades of grey, when he watched black and white TV or black and white films, he could tell what colour the objects in the images were. But from looking at whiteboards to departure boards for next week's question. Hello Naked Scientists, this is Matt from Benoni in South Africa. I'd like to know, if there was another major volcanic eruption, like the recent one in Iceland, what would have a greater effect on climate change? The emissions caused by the eruption, or the emissions of the aircraft that were grounded as a result of the eruption? Or would they perhaps cancel each other out? Thanks and keep up the great work. Which was worse for the environment, Eflayakul or most of Europe's aviation industry? Answers on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum or you can write to us directly. And the address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. Good pronunciation there, Diana. Diana will be back next week with the answer to that one. As usual, if there's a question you think needs Diana's special touch, do drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Kat, thank you very much. Right, that's it. We have run out of time for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Malcolm Bremer, Mark Marsh and Peter Kwong, and of course to our wonderful production team, Ben Vausler, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell and Sarah Caster-Perry. Join us next week for a pathological Q&A show. A pathologist, that's Dr Susie Lishman, will be here to help us to launch National Pathology Week and we'll also be answering your pathology questions. So send them and any other thoughts, comments and criticisms to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, just before we go, we do need your help. We've been shortlisted in the best podcast category in this year's physics.org web awards, so we need your votes to try and win. So please support us. If you go to our website, that's nakedscientist.com, there's a link on the front page to where you have to vote. So if you follow that link, you can put your votes in. But you have only got a very short time until November the 7th, so do please try and help us out. Meanwhile, have a great week. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. 
The Nation, where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.